Morbidology is a weekly true crime podcast hosted by me, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders, Unsolved Murders, Cults Uncovered, and Mysteries Uncovered. 911 emergency. My son shot my husband. I need an ambulance. He's bleeding. Each week on Morbidology, I uncover a new true crime case using investigative research combined with source audio. I just snatched it from her. My son had took it and it's like, I just hit her with it. Morbidology is a victim-focused podcast that mostly covers cases that aren't widely documented in mainstream media. I also like to take an in-depth look at any systemic failures which had a part to play in the crime. Do you know why you're here? For a uh, home invasion gone terribly wrong. Listen to Morbidology across all podcast platforms. You're listening to Campus Killings. Brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, DNA ID, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Citizen Detective. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Before we get started today, I just want to make a quick announcement. You all asked and we heard you. In an effort to improve and give listeners what they want, based on your feedback, we won't be including background music any longer in our episodes. Thanks for your feedback, as always. This episode takes us to Swarthmore College in a small rural Pennsylvania town in 1955, where an act would become a professor's 50-year secret. Roger Bechtel was 22 years old from Pottsville, Pennsylvania, at the time of the event we are discussing. He had attended Pottstown High School and then transferred to the Hill School, which was a private prep school, finishing 14th in his class of 231 people. Needless to say, he was very smart, and many called him extremely brilliant. His parents were divorced, and he had lived with his mother. He was studying psychology as a junior at Swarthmore College, and students always said he was known to analyze other students, which makes sense if he was studying psychology. Although he was studying psychology, though, he was preparing to go into the ministry as a Unitarian minister, which is a Christian religious denomination. He was also a member of the campus group called Students for Religious Understanding. Rather than finishing college, he took off some time to serve in the Air Force However, he was discharged in 1953 after suffering what was referred to as a, quote, nervous breakdown after just 43 days in the service. Now, Megan, we no longer use that term. Mm -hmm. But again, to put things into context, we are talking about 1955. When he returned back to college, he served as a third floor dorm proctor in Wharton Hall in exchange for a free room. He was described by many as bookish, serious, and shy. Sounds like somebody who would be good at being a proctor. Yeah. He had some friends, and he also had a girlfriend who was 19-year-old Susan Nason, who is a fellow student and the niece of the former president of the college. 
The victim in this case is a student by the name of Francis Strozier, who was age 19 from Akron, Ohio. He was a student in the arts college at Swarthmore, and he was a good student, quiet, really unassuming, but he did get straight A's and he was a star swimmer for the school. He lived in the same dorm as the one in which Robert proctored. On the night of January 10th, Robert worked from about 5 p.m. till a little bit after 8 p.m. in his job as a busboy at the Dewdrop Inn, which was near the college. According to his employer, he was normal, natural, and cheerful that evening. The employer also reported that, in general, Robert was very conscientious. He was a great worker and, you know, polite. Everyone liked him. After returning from work, he returned to his room, but he was unable to get in because, in his absence, someone had removed the doorknob. Now, it's unclear why, but as we'll come to find out, people like playing pranks in this dorm. Oh, I was going to ask that. Yeah, so we can assume that this was done as a prank towards him. Okay. He did finally manage to open the door, and then at 10 p.m., he borrowed a car from a fellow student, John Gallagher, telling John that he had wanted to go home to pick up some papers. His home was his mother's house in Pottstown, which was less than 50 miles away. When he got home, he woke up his mother and told her that he was there to pick up some papers and books for school. And he also said he wanted to grab his guns so he could sell them to help pay his expenses. He picked up a 22 caliber rifle and a revolver, along with four boxes of ammo for the rifle, which would be about 134 rounds. He was only home for about 10 minutes, his mother saying that he seemed normal while there. Now, he returned to campus around 1230 a.m. Now, of course, it is January 11th. He went to his room for a little while. While he was there, he loaded seven bullets into the rifle clip and 36 into the cartridge belt, which he strapped on around his waist. Wow. So I guess he's not selling them. No, it doesn't seem like it. At 314 a.m., he left his room and walked to the third floor hallway to Francis's room. He found that room, which was room 303, unlocked. He saw Francis was asleep, and Francis's roommate, Roger Witt of Fanwood, New Jersey, was also there asleep. After using a flashlight to illuminate the sleeping Francis, Robert shot him once in the temple with the twenty-two caliber rifle. At this point, the roommate woke up, but he said he had assumed it was students firing off firecrackers, and so he went back to sleep. It was very dark in the room, so it's possible. Robert then tried the door across the hall, which belonged to another student, named John Peatman, but that door was locked. Robert then fired two random shots into the hallway walls, tried some other doors where they were all locked, ran to the second floor, tried some doors again, and then fired two random shots into the ceiling. Wow. I would imagine people are waking up now. I would think so. And then he went to the first floor and he fired the two final shots, emptying the ammo clip. Robert then ran outside the dorm to another wing of the building, climbing to room 302, where he woke up his best friend, Clinton Fink, and his roommate, Sidney Winter, and said simply, quote, I just killed a boy. The two then got Robert, whom they say was calm, to put down his guns, and they escorted him a half a mile to the Swarthmore police station to turn himself in. When they walked into the police station, Robert immediately told two patrolmen, quote, I just committed a murder up at the college. The cops accused them of really just making a joke, right? Because this kind of seems, who would do that? (laughs) He was very calm. They think he's making a prank. Yeah, they said, you know, they they thought he was just pulling their leg. Oh, God. He again said very calmly, quote, this isn't a joke. 
The officers asked how he was so certain that his victim was dead. He said simply, I'm not. So they locked him in a cell. And very strangely, when they got to the dorm, no one was awake. I don't know how nobody woke up to gunshots. I'm not sure. I I'm not sure that either. That doesn't make sense. It could to also me. just be the reporting. We're talking about the 50s. So there's not a lot of reporting on this the way we would see reporting for a crime that occurs today. Okay. So the officers still kind of didn't believe anything was happening until they walked into the dorm room and they saw the blood and they woke up Roger Witt, the roommate, and he said, you know, I don't know what happened. They called Dr. William Ryle of Swarthmore to the scene and they, at that point, they pronounced Francis Holmes Strozier dead. The mattress on the bed showed a big blood stain on the top left where his head had been laid. Oh. Robert told Detective Earl Allen and Dean Everett Hunt that he was out to get four or five students that night. He said he wanted to get even because the students would not follow his instructions. Remember, he was a proctor and he was a bit of a serious guy. And his role was to enforce the rules, such as lights out, no alcohol in the dorm. College students don't always listen no. to their peers who are telling them, make no. your music lower, turn out the lights. So according to Robert, because of him trying to enforce the rules, they played incessant pranks on him. For example, he says students would light a fire in his waste paper basket. One student rolled a 16-pound shot put against his door. I don't know where you get a 16-pound shot put. Students would set bombs and firecrackers off. They would dump his bed into the quad. They would grease his doorknob. They would leave apple cores and orange peels in his bed. And he told police that Francis was his, quote, chief tormentor, or maybe we would say the ringleader of these pranks. And then years later, he would deny that. You know, we call them pranks, too, or they called them pranks. But what you're talking about is real bullying, mm -hmm. real, um, you know, torment, as, as he would say. This is not just, you know, a, I play a cute prank on you. I mean, this is, I would say, you know, some of serious uh, putting your, your bed in the quad. I've heard of these pranks, but as they escalate and as they're serious and as they continue, I'm sure that his frustration and upset really built. And I would like to think this wouldn't happen today. I would like to think there's so such too. a strong culture now against bullying. I'm not saying bullying doesn't happen, yeah. but it's not as tolerated. I think somebody in this crew would have not been okay with it or right. somebody would have sounded the alarm. Also, you have a prank like that you might have one in itself mm -hmm. as a prank, right? You know, but yeah. a series of these types of behaviors mm -hmm. would really cause someone to grow very, very upset and alienated and feeling, you know, I would say feelings of strain yeah. and stress. And as you pointed out, this isn't pranking. This is bullying. Yeah. He had told police, actually, that, quote, this condition reached an intolerable point. You know, it got to a point where I regarded it as a personal matter. I can't explain why I did it. I had a rage against them. I felt they were persecuting me. But right before Christmas break, Robert reported that the students started antagonizing him. And he said he got so annoyed that he went to the dean. And he named five boys as the ringleaders, with the victim being one of the five. And he told the dean that he was having a lot of trouble with this group. And the dean's suggestion was to present the matter to the student governing body. But Robert felt that publicizing his complaints would only antagonize the pranksters. And I agree with that. I agree as well. And unfortunately, the dean dropped the issue. That and, is unfortunate. Yeah. And as he later told a media source, quote, it was a combination of the most lively students being under the care of the most stern and most conscientious of proctors. In other words, 
Robert was a stickler for the rules. And no doubt that only encouraged the students to probably pick on him more. The interesting thing is other students said that Francis was, in fact, not one of the ringleaders. So I'm not sure if Robert had mistaken him for someone else or if he was, in fact, quietly one of the pranksters. I'm not really sure. But what I do know is that it seems that his cries for help went ignored. And that particular dorm, unfortunately, was known as the rowdiest dorm at the school. There's always one. And now a brief word from our sponsors. Robert was brought before the Justice of the Peace, Morris Smith, at 7 p.m. as the DA, Raymond Start, read the charge of murder one. Robert waived a preliminary hearing and entered a plea of not guilty. He was described as very quiet and calm throughout the session. His mother spoke with him for about an hour around this time and said that he seemed normal, but that he was at times, quote, incoherent. So I'm not sure if he was incoherent. Was she planting seeds of insanity defense? It's not clear. This is, though, um, there's the buildup to the crime where he knows what he's going to do. There's an anticipation. Mm-hmm. There's an, you know, an angst. And then he commits the act and it's a release. Mm-hmm. So for him, I believe there's a calm after the storm mm-hmm. that we've seen with certain cases in which it probably was the stress was over. The act was done and he felt that he could just, you know, mm-hmm. now kind of be peaceful. Let's talk a little bit about his mental state. As we noted, he was discharged from the Air Force after what was known as, quote, a mental breakdown, Mm -hmm. although it's not clear what that entailed. There were reports that said he showed signs of a persecution complex and was uncooperative and that at time he did not know his own age and had suicidal tendencies. Some reports also say he had paranoid tendencies, which, of course, go along with the persecution complex. Which would be exacerbated if he was actually being persecuted, if he was falling, mm-hmm. if he was being victimized. And according to the school, they had not been notified of this background. Now, I'm not sure if that's true, if that's just the school trying to cover themselves. Okay. Robert's attorney won a motion to have two psychiatrists conduct mental evaluations of him ahead of trial. Two weeks later, the defense moved for what was called a sanity commission to examine him. So this was basically as part of the state's mental health act at the time. And the commission was two doctors and a lawyer who would evaluate him. Right. On March 9th, Robert was indicted for murder and manslaughter by a Delaware County coroner's grand jury after testimony from nine witnesses as to the events that occurred. He himself did not testify. Okay. Of course, the two friends who he confessed to testified The trial was scheduled for March 22nd, but before the trial started, the three-member sanity commission that I mentioned found that he was mentally ill and unfit to stand trial. Now, this is from the opinion dated February 6th, 1956, quote, the commission found that Bechtel was mentally ill and was a person of criminal tendency as defined in the Mental Health Act, which reads that criminal tendency shall mean a tendency to repeat offenses against the law or to perpetrate new offenses as shown by repeated convictions for such offenses or tendency to habitual delinquency. Now, the commission recommended that the defendant be sent to the Fairview State Hospital for the criminally insane. Again, a different time. Yep. That title would not work today. No. The judge denied the defense's motion to drop the homicide indictment, which meant that If and when Robert was discharged, he would have to face the outstanding charge. Mm -hmm. In other words, he was found not competent to stand trial. Exactly. Once restored to competency, then the trial would commence. 
He was remanded to the hospital, though, for, quote, the rest of his life, which his attorneys did object to. And his attorneys also wanted him to be moved to a different mental hospital rather than the one he was going to because they were arguing that there was no proof that he had criminal tendencies and that that was not the right place for him because that's where somebody with criminal tendencies would have been sent. In other words, I think it might have been what we would consider a forensic hospital. Right. I just don't understand why he would be remanded for the rest of his life if like at some point he would be able to be competent. But perhaps that's a question for later. That can be resolved later on. Either way, the motion was rejected and he stayed at Fairview. Now, the reason for the commission's findings were laid out in the court opinion. We didn't talk exactly about what the commission found or what evidence led to their conclusion. Okay. Robert had informed the commission that when he was in high school in Arizona, he entertained thoughts of killing a boy who had threatened his life because, quote, it was either he or I. Okay. And during his junior year at Hill School, he was sent to Norristown State Hospital for a short time. Again, they talked about the 43 days in the Air Force and then given a medical discharge and the diagnosis being anxiety reactions, schizoid personality, paranoid personality, and paranoid delusions. Additionally, while in the Air Force, he attacked another boy, believing without reason that the boy had stolen some of his records. He was also in constant fights with boys in his dormitory. On the night of the shooting, he was so upset that he decided to go home. He says on the way home, he saw a sign, Norristown, which is the name of a mental hospital. Mm -hmm. And this is when he conceived the idea of going there and asking that he be locked up. Then he gave up the idea, went home, but was disappointed when his mother did not give him what he perceived as proper consolation. So it sounds like he was having doubts. Mm -hmm. He was going to check himself in somewhere, then went home and then didn't get the response he felt he needed from his mother. Mm -hmm. Sounds erratic. Yeah. The commission made the following findings from his own testimony. Quote, about halfway back to the college, he decided to wipe out the 120 students in the dormitory, first thinking of using dynamite. After deciding on using the guns, he intended to methodically take each room and shoot the boys. He went down the hall and saw a sign and thought he heard whispering in that room. So he went in the room and shot the boy. He was not sure who he was shooting. Then he fired three shots in the hall of the third floor went down to the second floor, fired two more shots in the hall there, and finally fired a shot on the first floor. He stated that he has no feelings about the killing, feels no remorse, and is neither sorry or glad that he did it. He could see no difference between war and his action. Whoa. That's very condemning. Yeah, Robert also claimed that his first sexual experience with a girl was when he was three years old, that he had another experience at four or five years of age, and has had sexual experience with some eight or ten girls since becoming an adult. The commission continues that, you know, based on the foregoing, it is our opinion that this man is psychotic with a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia who probably has experienced hallucinations. He is delusional. His statement that dynamiting the dormitory would have been the most efficient way of handling the matter, together with his walking down the hall with a rifle in his hands, with a revolver and a hunting knife and a flashlight, shows great deficit in judgment and his complete lack of understanding of human problems and their solution. I'm not sure I disagree. Yet. I don't either. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I you know, and it's it's a awful crime, but I'm not sure I'm I'm seeing some, you know, signs serious, of mental illness. Yeah, yeah, I'm seeing some signs here. It was also reported that during the examination he was hostile toward the examiners and others in the room. According to the report, his prognosis is extremely bad in view of the long history and he will remain a potentially dangerous person. 
The opinion went on to say one of the two major reasons for the Mental Health Act was to protect society from those who are mentally ill and have criminal tendencies. Robert certainly comes squarely within these provisions of the act. Yeah, I agree. So we both would agree that it sounds like this might be someone who's potentially dangerous to society. I think so, for sure. Robert Bechtel was released from Fairview a couple of years later on November 4th, 1959, and sent to Broad Meadows Prison, where he was pronounced fit to stand trial. Ah, I see. So So he was remanded indefinitely before. It wasn't really forever. It was indefinite until until, competency. Okay, that makes sense. So what this means is that they believe that with the proper medication and therapeutic interventions, he was now competent enough so that the trial could proceed. That makes sense. On January 5th, 1960, he faced two indictments in Delaware County Court, one for murder in the first and second degree and two for voluntary manslaughter. In court, Prosecutor John Graham read a letter from John Strozier, the victim's father, stating that they bore no ill will towards Bechtel and that they believed he was under mental stress at the time of the shooting. It said, quote, we feel no bitterness toward Bechtel. We are convinced that he was insane at the time. We would not want him confined if he is not now insane. Wow. Forgiving. Very forgiving and very Ahead of its time. I would have to agree. 1960. I mean, there was a lot more stigma towards people with mental illness. And Mm -hmm. yeah, this is, I think people were probably surprised by this. Yeah. He had clearly made a remarkable recovery in the hospital. After a motion for a directed verdict by Bechtel's attorney, Judge William Toll directed the jury to deliver a verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity. Really? Yes. That's a surprising turn of events. So a judge is allowed to direct a jury in some cases. So there's a motion for a directed verdict. I've heard of that. Yeah, I guess I, that must be such a rare occurrence. Again, I've this is never, 1960. Yeah, I've almost never heard of it. So the judge is directing that he's met, met the elements for yeah. insanity. And the judge does have the power to supersede a jury as long as the charge is not more severe. That's true. But it's very rare. Wow. So Robert Bechtel was released to his mother with bail of $2,500 and was to return to court in March to hear the judge's ruling on probation. Now, these were the choices. He would be returned to the hospital for additional treatment. He would be released with certain medical conditions or he would be released altogether. The judge released him. Completely without conditions? 100% unconditional release. I I mean, I don't think that's the appropriate thing. Well... You don't, but let's hear what happens. Okay. Because the reason we punish people or the reason we keep people incapacitated is to protect society. Mm -hmm. If somebody is rehabilitated and ready to be a functioning member of society, then we should be releasing them. I didn't mean that he should be kept any longer. I would have wanted to see continual mental health treatment Mm -hmm. or check-ins for some period of time, for a probationary period of time. That's what I feel more comfortable with. But okay. Well, Robert Bechtel went on to get his degree from Susquehanna University and then his doctorate in psychology from the University of Kansas in 1967. Good for him. Then in 1976, he applied to be a professor of environmental psychology at the University of Arizona. Now, one might say that's a conflict of interest, if you think about it. (laughs) To teach on a campus when you've committed a crime on a campus, one might say, although I commend Mm -hmm. him and we know people 
in our personal lives mm-hmm. who have been, um, you know, served prison sentences and come out mm-hmm. and gone on to teach. So I would commend him for that. But the university was not made aware about the shooting because at the time, the application did not require him to say anything because he had not been convicted of a felony. I was just going to point that out. No conviction. This no. wouldn't happen today because of the Internet. Oh, well, yeah, of course. Background checks. But it still would be a requirement for a felony and not a misdemeanor. Mm hmm. We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. So he ended up getting married and him and his wife moved to Arizona so that he could take this job at the University of Arizona. He and he also had a daughter who eventually attended the University of Arizona, Kara, and she graduated in 2001. Now, Kara did not know about her father's past until she was 19 years old. Mm. Well, I'm not sure that you would want to share that with your daughter. No, but I think I think it's the right thing that he told her. Of course. Especially 2001 yes. internet, like things Absolutely. could get out. Kara told the Arizona Daily Wildcat of the revelation about the shooting, quote, it wasn't something I could incorporate. He is a very loving father. So Kara worked with an independent filmmaker to tell her father's story. Now, the purpose of the documentary wasn't just to talk about how he turned his life around. It was to focus on the repercussions of bullying. Okay. And Kara and Robert Bechtel said that they wanted to make people aware that bullying is not something that stops after elementary school. Mm -hmm. Because around this time, unfortunately, we're seeing a big increase in school shootings. And there's a big focus on school shootings in middle schools, high schools, elementary schools. And they're trying to say, you know, they they want people to be aware that bullying can continue on and have these negative repercussions. And this can go to prevention of these acts, Mm -hmm. which we often, you you know, address the acts afterwards. But prevention is more important, I would argue. Yeah. And I commend him because I'm sure this wasn't easy. Yeah. Yeah. In November of 2004, with a film crew filming, he announced to his classes in person that he had shot another student at Swarthmore back in 1955. He did get permission from the school administrators before he made the revelation. Wow. Can you imagine sitting in a college psychology class and your professor talking about this? Because he was now in his 70s. I can't even imagine as a professor myself standing in class telling a student about my maybe one of my worst acts, which isn't, you know. It's so brave. Yeah, it is. Especially because the purpose of doing this was to talk about the repercussions of bullying. Right. Yeah. Not only was Kara there, her half-sister, Amanda, was there. Kara's mother, Bev, was also present there. So he told his 8 a.m. environmental psychology class, very early to hear something like that. Oh, yeah. And then his noon psychology of happiness class. Okay. So he told them after a life of being bullied, he had simply snapped. He told them he had been bullied from the time he was four years old until he was in college. His story, some people would say that his story was embellished from what was said in 1955. Okay. He now said that the bullies moved his bed outside of the residence hall into the quad and urinated on it. He also heard choruses of Bechtel will eat shit as he walked down halls. He also said he would be hit and kicked often and that there was always a crowd of people around him that were there to witness his mistreatment. So it's unclear if he's embellishing to get attention to, to make it seem like what he did was more warranted or if maybe or he didn't remember memories. correctly. It's un, it's unclear. Right. He also told the class, quote, I was going to stop it all by shooting up the whole place. 
But after shooting one student, the feeling dissolved and he stopped. Mm-hmm. At that point, he turned himself into the police. And he said, I wanted to blow away the whole dorm, but I only shot one person. So I don't know if he's trying to make it seem like he's not as bad by giving the students this information. It's unclear. I have to see the documentary, too, because there's a difference between explaining his behavior and justifying it. We say that a lot. And even though he was bullied, and I I believe there was a mental state that led to it, we can't justify shooting someone. He also said that at Fairview Hospital is where he realized that he could have a meaningful life if he just helped other people. So in that hospital, he started teaching other patients math, English, and geography. And when officials at the hospital saw that he had this insight, that's when they decided that he was ready to be released. Okay. Unsure if this is true. This is just what's reported. Okay. Robert says that after he told his classes that he had killed someone, there was a wide range of reactions. You know, some people were shocked. Uh, Other people went up to him and thanked him. Others went up to him and said they were grateful for his admission. Others admitted that they too were bullied. So there was mixed reaction. Mm -hmm. Now, the documentary, which was called The Killer Within, was shown at the Philadelphia Film Festival in 2007. I have not watched it yet, but I can tell you it is certainly on my list. Oh, well, well, it's on my list now, too. Robert was interviewed by the Philadelphia Inquirer in 2007 in connection with the release of the documentary. And he said, quote, a lot of people have this idea that I must have been angry or enraged or something. Actually, he says, I was just pretty scared. And as soon as I shot, I had this feeling of a hand over my heart. And I just gave up on the whole thing right then. As far as I was concerned, I would just go to the police, turn myself in, go right to the chair, get it over with. So it sounds like he knew what he did was wrong immediately. I thought he shot, unless I understood this wrong, I thought he shot his victim and then went on to try to find other victims. And the doors were all locked. So he didn't exactly know what he did right away. He didn't exactly drop the gun. He still went on realizing at some point. I'm just pointing out that yeah. that's a little bit different. And if than- those doors were unlocked, would there have been a different outcome? Exactly. I don't know. He told the Inquirer that he found out that his victim, Francis Stozier's brother, lived in Arizona. So he wrote a letter acknowledging that he didn't know whether his victim had actually been involved. The headlines had said that he, you know, killed his tormentor. Mm-hmm. And he said that upset him because it made it look like the victim was a bad person. Mm-hmm. When, in fact, he says that was not the case. So I think he wanted to clear his name, Brother's so name. to speak. Yeah, of yeah. course. So he wrote to the brother saying he was really sorry about what he did, but he never heard back. And as Robert says, that's perfectly his right. I can understand that he doesn't want to have anything to do with me. He also told the Inquirer he believed he had suffered from PTSD because of bullying his whole life. Again, he talks about how since he was four, he had been the target of bullying and taunting, which, of course, continued throughout college. I'd like to hear his explanation in the documentary, too. I'm not very unsure about what the sexual part or sexual partners at a young age. Well, I mean, is he saying that he had an experience with a child or is he saying he was molested? You know what I mean? By an adult. Right. So I'm curious and I would look at the documentary to see, you know, I if, don't know if they I, mean, I also think even if he was abused as a child, he might be lumping that in with bullying. Yeah, but he might have PTSD from that. Oh, and that all, would be, uh, yeah. you know, and he might have felt bullied if he was abused by an adult. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, that, that could be um, part of it. Yeah. He says he was traumatized as a child. And because of that, he has successfully lobbied the Arizona legislator to pass a bill protecting students from bullying. 
And he said, quote, and it's not the bullying at Swarthmore that really caused it. It's the whole history of bullying that I brought with me. And that's what triggered it. Mm -hmm. He was also telling of an incident when he was a child where older boys would yank down his pants and slide him down an icy hill. So, you know, as he's older now, he's telling more stories about the torment that he faced as a child. Mm -hmm. Swarthmore issued a statement objecting to the documentary's portrayal of the school culture of bullying, of course. I'm sure. And they called Robert's portrayal of the events as misleading. They said he was not subjected to violence or intimidation, and it wasn't bullying that caused the shooting. It was his mental illness. I mean, this is all in hindsight. The administrators there now Uh, were certainly not the administrators then. They don't know. No. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. In 2005, Robert was planning on attending his class's 50th reunion at the college. Oh, I wouldn't think no. that they would want him on No, the I mean, it's unclear whether he actually went, but many in the class were not happy about this. No. I don't blame them. I have to say, that's not appropriate. No, no matter what. That's just not an appropriate thing. And a lot of students that had gone to school with Robert and lived in the dorm say there was no bullying. There was not this culture of bullying the way he says there is. And in fact, the victim was a very nice person who tormented nobody. Well, Amy, it might be that it was bullying or it might be that it was his perception. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we can't know for sure. We can only report on the information that we were able to find out. Robert Bechtel being declared insane and then released as a free man within five years Probably would not happen today. No, I, I would agree. I don't think that would happen at all. I think that we've seen a lot of cases where insanity is at issue, where people are going to spend significant periods of time, if not life, in a facility. And it, it's unclear. We don't have all the details surrounding the release or what went on while he was institutionalized. So it's hard for us to really analyze it. So, I mean, it's hard to know. Did he kill people in the name of vengeance for some perceived torment? Or did he kill people because his own insecurities? Or was he legitimately not in his right mind? I have no idea whether he is under any kind of psychiatric care or takes any medications for his conditions. None of that has been made public. What we do know is that he was almost certainly not insane at the time of the shooting and remarkably permanently cured five years later. Well, insanity, let me say insanity is not a medical term. It's a legal one. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't say that's very sure that he wasn't insane. He could have been suffered because, again, Mm -hmm. insanity is just a legal term. You have to have a medical diagnosis. So if he was somewhat psychotic, if he was suffering from any type of other mental affliction, then he could be deemed insane. I think that there is something telling about the fact that he, I don't know if it's remarkable, but four years of treatment might have led to rehabilitation. Look, he didn't commit any other crimes throughout the course of his life that we know of. So it is perhaps that he was really suffering and he was rehabilitated and treated. It's it's a thing of speculation now, but it's entirely possible, I think. Either way, you know, we have to look at this and think, uh, was there justice for the victim? I don't know. I'm not sure how the family felt about the fact that Robert was a free man after five years. But what we do know is that he's a productive member of society, giving back to society by teaching students. And by at least being honest about what he did and trying to help others going forward. Yes. And being a staunch advocate for bullying, which is what he believes caused him to do what he did. And look, to be fair, we always like to say that what we'd like to see happen with offenders is that they come out and they reintegrate and they do become productive people. Mm -hmm. So whether or not he's, you know, guilty because it was out of anger or because it was, you know, some different impetus, 
He spent that time there. Court deemed him rehabilitated. He came out. And like you said, he has been a productive person. It's like, you know, you're supposed to, what do they say? Con- condemn the sin, not the sinner. Mm-hmm. Um, so he did a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that was, you know, a bad thing a long time ago. And he's done good yeah. things since. And perhaps we could learn something from this case. So maybe people that we find legally insane, maybe they don't need to spend 50 years in an institution. Maybe people can be rehabilitated sooner. People are redeemable, huh, Amy? Always. Yes, people are always redeemable. You know, I always say that. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you will join us for the next episode of Campus Killings. Campus Killings is hosted by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg with research and writing by Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to follow Campus Killings on social media. You can find Campus Killings on Twitter with the handle at Campus Killings or on Facebook by searching for Campus Killings Podcast. Be sure to tune in every other Saturday for new episodes of Campus Killings.